Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Honor, a privilege, and a pleasure, as always, to have you here with me. Uh, Please do give a call, 844-900-2825. That's 844-900-BUCK. Uh, and we've got a lot to get to today, as is usual, as is our custom here in the hut. Uh, we will talk about OJ's parole hearing, and yes, in fact, uh, OJ will be freed uh, from prison. It looks like starting in October. Uh, this is more just a moment of media nostalgia for a lot of people, and it just brings them back to the '90s. And so we'll talk a bit about that. Uh, also, some updates on um, health care. Definitely want to talk to you about the latest there. Um, we'll be joined uh, by Ben Shapiro of The Daily Wire, as well as Kyle Smith of National Review. He's got some great guests lined up for the show. But I mean, today, the big the big thing that happened, uh, and, and I, I understand that there's fatigue with the subject, but you know, got to cover it sometimes. The big issue as I see it, uh, or, or as the media sees it, is this discussion that Donald Trump had with the New York Times. There's audio of it. We're going to play some of the audio, audio for you. Here's my theory on this, because I I cannot explain everything that's going on with the Trump uh, White House, and I certainly can't explain everything going on with Donald Trump himself. I think he's reached a point where he's so frustrated. He's so frustrated with all of the uh, media efforts to make it seem like there's something really deeply insidious with this Russia collusion that he's getting worn down and and he's just losing patience with the whole thing because to go into the New York Times as he did and speak on the record to an editorial staff that has devoted itself from the beginning to tearing down his presidency and sending someone from his White House to prison if they have their way to sit down with them and answer questions in good faith, I, I've got to tell you, I do not see what the benefit is. I, I don't know. I don't see the angle here. Because now you've given them a, a day to just run with the following. Quote, citing recusal, Trump says he wouldn't have hired Sessions. Now, I think that that's a, a more defensible point of view than certainly the New York Times and the rest of the Democratic Party does. And I'll get into why. But first, we've got to get into what the president said on the record to the New York Times. I mean, this is going into the enemy camp, my friends. They're not going to give him a fair shake. They don't want to get to the truth. They want to destroy the presidency. So why do it? I I don't know. I I can't come up with an answer other than uh, he's just reached the point where he he wants people to wise up and move on. But the Times isn't going to do that. They have invested a tremendous amount of their journalistic resources into this. 
They knew about the Donald Trump Jr. meeting a long time ago. They held on to that. They built up for maximum impact. I mean, this is a concerted campaign in the media to destroy the presidency. Now, but before I get into what Trump said, though, I do also want to point out that maybe maybe part of this is also the president realizes that a lot of Americans just don't care. In fact, a lot of Americans, I think a lot of people who voted for Trump and even a lot of independents just don't care what the findings of the special counsel are. They, they don't want to hear about Russia anymore at all. You have a very interesting analysis that looked at uh, and had tip John Gabriel uh, at uh, ricochet.com for this, a comparison of Bloomberg's top issues poll. This is for all Americans and a media research center uh, look at what the focus of coverage was for major networks. So here, here's what this poll says. The top issues for Americans, uh, and, and they go down a list. The, 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 what the American people care about versus what the media cares about is the, head, is the headline here. Healthcare. 35% are, uh, of Americans view healthcare as a top issue. The percentage of media coverage devoted to healthcare uh, in June, I think this is based on June, um, 4%. Jobs, 13% of Americans consider that to be the top issue. 1% of media time spent on jobs. Terrorism, 11% of Americans view that as the top issue. 6% of media time on that. Immigration, 10% of Americans view that as a top issue. Zero media coverage in the time period here um, back in June. Climate change, 10% and 10%. It actually kind of lines up, but, you know, 10% of Democrats care about climate change and the media is Democrats, so they give 10% of their time to that. Taxes, 4% and 0% of media coverage on that. Now here we get, this is why I'm telling you this, right? Now you're, you're like, Buck, okay, come on, this is a poll. Why are you getting into this? 6% of Americans view Russia as a top priority for Americans. Uh, 75% of media coverage in the month of June on Russia. 75%. I mean, this is a complete and utter fixation. And I think that part of it is that the, the media refuses to believe the same way they refuse to believe that it was beyond their power to stop Trump from becoming president. I think there's also a refusal to believe that it's beyond the media's power to stop the Trump presidency in its tracks. They, they are and they will not stop until they achieve that. So they there's clearly a, a belief here. But Trump sits down with the New York Times. I don't know why. If any of you have a theory on this, by the way, by all means, I would love to hear it. I, Like I said, I think frustration is the number one. You know, the same way that after a while, an innocent man just doesn't want to doesn't want to hear it anymore about how he's going through the system. And, you know, he's going to get annoyed with the judge. He's going to get annoyed with anybody in, in the justice system that is around them. Because if you know you're innocent, you feel like the whole thing is unfair. Maybe Trump is just at that point of sheer and utter frustration with the whole process that he's just sitting down the New York Times. He's like, guys, can we just, you know, man to man here? I mean, obviously, there are women in the room, too. So that's clearly a microaggression for me to even say. But you know what I mean? Can we just be real people here? I mean, the American people want me to be focusing on issues. They want me to do things to help them. They really don't want to sit around 
and just read about Russia all day. Maybe your readership does, but I mean, the New York Times has a max readership of, I don't know, between one and two million, maybe something like that, or subscription base, I think, something like that. I don't know how many people are, how many uniques the website's getting each month, but its subscribers are maybe in a couple of million. I don't know. Maybe they want to read about Russia, but the rest of the country would like to know about other things. And they also don't want the presidency to be uh, held back by all of this nonsense. But here's here's what the president went and told them. He, he sat down and answered questions, and they sprung a trap for him. He walked into it. Whether you think it did any damage or not, I'll leave that to you. But here's what he said. Sessions gets the job. Right after he gets the job, he recuses himself. Was that a mistake? Well, Sessions should have never recused himself. And if he would, if he was going to recuse himself, he should have told me before he took the job and I would have picked somebody else. Mm-hmm. He gave you no heads up at all in any sense. Zero. Okay. So Jeff Sessions takes the job, gets into the job, recuses himself. I then have, uh, which, which frankly, I think it's very unfair to the president. How do you take a job and then recuse yourself? If he would have recused himself before the job, I would have said, thanks, Jeff, but I can't, you know, I'm not going to take you. It's extremely unfair, and that's a mild word to the president. Now, this is being cited by the hostile press as evidence that Trump was going to or or would like to uh, be able to count on his attorney general to protect him from the Russia investigation. He's saying, look, if I had known that the attorney general that I picked would have backed out of this, uh, I wouldn't have picked him. So therefore, he's not interested in a fair process. I think Trump just views all of this in a different way. And he views it as look at look at what happened with Hillary and uh, under the Obama administration, Loretta Lynch. This is politics. Uh, This is all about who's in power and who's using that power to their advantage and their party's advantage. And this is a, a rough a rough game. And if you're going to try to be a stickler for the rules all the time, you're just going to end up losing while the other side cheats. I, I think that's his mentality about this, meaning that uh, do we really believe the Justice Department when it comes to issues like this? Sure. I think Justice Department, you know, most of the time when, when we're talking about, you know, cartel assassins and we're talking about major drug dealers and, uh, you know, serial killers. Uh, I mean, that's, I guess, a federal issue, but depends on the context. But, you know, on those issues, yeah, it doesn't matter. Democrat, Republican, the DOJ, they're professionals. They, they've got all that stuff handled. But the moment that you're talking about presidential politics and electoral politics and looking into a specific White House and special counsel, it's inherently a deeply political exercise. That's why we have different Senate committees, and we can all see it right in front of us. The Democrats on the Senate committees are like, wah, 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 Trump is bad. The Republicans are like, hold on a second. We don't have the facts. We need to slow this down. This is obvious to us. And maybe, in a sense, Trump just rejects this veneer, this facade, this pretense, this this play-along game we are all supposed to partake in of the DOJ is a nonpartisan organization. It's largely nonpartisan, but not entirely. Does anyone really think that the Department of Justice with Eric Holder and then with Loretta Lynch under the Obama administration was not chasing Democrat priorities and, and not a an instrument of partisanship when need when needed? Look at the Hillary email investigation. I mean, so... 
but that also this is all a way of saying that Trump's view of this unfortunately plays into the media narrative here, which is that, see, he was trying to manipulate this all along. And by the way, we've also got to talk about Mueller looking into, by the way, everyone else is saying Mueller, but I'm pretty sure it's Mueller, uh, but maybe it's Mueller. I don't know. A former FBI director who's the special counsel here. Uh, he's looking into Trump's finances and they asked about that too. And there's, there's a lot more here. I also do want to talk to you about healthcare because that's that should be the the main focus in the press. It is, of course, it is not because uh, they'd rather just do this. As, as I told you, look at the priorities, the media priorities on this issue. I try to limit how much we do on the issue of Russia because I, I think that you want to hear about other things and I want to talk to you about other things. But there's some level of defense that's needed here. Because I don't think I don't think the president did himself any favors by going and speaking to the New York Times. I don't know what his lawyers are advising him to do and— You've got Jared Kushner going to speak behind closed doors to the Senate Intelligence Committee next week. You've got Manafort and Donald Trump Jr. going to speak in an open session before the Senate Judiciary Committee. You've also got that Fusion GPS guy uh, testifying there. He's always like in paragraph 17 in stories about this. But I I really want to know. Remember the Fusion GPS, the dossier on Trump. I'd like to know more about all of that. Uh, and maybe we will. We'll see also if someone pleads the Fifth Amendment in this whole process. But we got to talk about the financial angle here and, and what Trump said on that. And why do you why do you think Trump is going in and speaking to The New York Times? Uh, why go into the lion's den that way? Uh, what purpose does it serve? You have, if you have a theory or an idea on this, I would love to hear it. 844-900-BUCK. Uh, I'll be right back. Stay with me. We've got Brian in North Carolina calling in from WPTI. Hey, Brian. Yeah, hey, Buck, I'd I just like to, to say I think that Trump is just letting folks know that, uh, hey, he made a mistake with Sessions, but he wants people that'll fight, you know, with him. Sessions bowed out, did the nice thing. You know, Sessions didn't do anything that he needed to recuse himself of it. And, and, and tr- he should have stood in there and fought for Trump. He should have said, look, you give me some evidence. You've got to have it. If it's so open, then, you know, you don't have to keep digging and digging and digging. If it's there, it's there. You know, I'm not I'm not recusing myself. And so the next person that, that Trump tries to put in a position, I hope he'll be up front with Trump and say, look, I'm going to go in the ditch with you and fight this thing. That's what the Republicans ought to be doing. In North Carolina, I know, you know, uh, Burr, he didn't do anything. Uh, he's just uh, going along with the Democrats uh, and, and saying, oh, we've got to we've got to find this stuff, you know, and, and stuff. And he ought to be standing behind Trump saying, look, there's nothing there, you know. So should Tillis. Tillis, you know, where, where do you hear anything out of Tillis in North Carolina? You heard him say anything uh, positive about Trump, about, hey, we're behind our president. Okay, and, and as far as Fox, does that matter, over there on the House? You know, Trump meets people behind him that's going to that's gonna fight this thing, that's not going to be be just, uh, you know, a jellyfish backbone and, uh, and just um, – been to the whims of the Democrats. Brian, I, I said, uh, you, if you've been listening to the show for a while, I thought the appointing a special counsel was a bad idea. I thought the Sessions recusal yeah, was uh, a bad idea. I, I, I'm, I am not. I've seen all this coming because the, the, the Democrats play this yeah. game where, and the media goes along with it. Of course, the media really is out front with it that, come on, Republicans, you have you have your principles. You're supposed to be the, the Boy Scouts, the good guys here. You're supposed to be the ones that play by the rules. 
rules. You need to do what's right here. And then and then we can have an adult conversation. And it's like Lucy with Charlie Brown and the football. Every time the same thing happens. The act, of, the act of good faith is met with a slap in the face and a ha-ha from the Democrats. And that's what you see with Sessions. I agree with Trump. Sessions should not, should not have recused himself. And I've been, uh, I know I've been clear from the beginning, the special counsel is a terrible idea. Absolutely. Yeah, all right, man. Shields high. Thank you for calling in. Look, here's what Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, said in response to Donald Trump on this issue. We in this Department of Justice will continue every single day to work hard to serve the national interest, and we wholeheartedly join in the priorities of President Trump. He gave us several directives. One is to dismantle internet transnational criminal organizations. That's what we're announcing today, the dismantling of the largest dark website in the world by far. Uh, and I congratulate our people for that. Uh, I have uh, the honor of serving in, as Attorney General. It's something that uh, uh, goes beyond any thought I would have ever had for myself. We love this job, we love this department, and I plan to continue to do so as long as uh, that is appropriate. Look, I think Jeff Sessions is a good man. I think he just doesn't realize the fight that he got in the middle of by joining the Trump, uh, joining the Trump team, that, that this is all-out political war. And the, the attorney general, you know, ask any lawyer who's going to be honest with you about this, anyone who's been a prosecutor, defense attorney, who's worked on the criminal side of things, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, of discretion. There's a lot of gray area. There's a lot of, you know, does it go your way or not? And that decision... Whether it goes your way or not, that's within the discretion of the prosecutor, of the judge, of the U.S. attorney, uh, is the difference between life destroyed and life going on like nothing ever happened. So we need to stop allowing the Democrats and the Democrat media to con- to create, to concoct this narrative of, oh, this is all so obvious. Of course, Sessions should have recused himself. For what? Because he, he talked to two Russian—I mean, the guy was a sitting senator. He talked to a Russian in one time and another time in a, in a hall full of people. So he's going to recuse himself from being the attorney general on a matter that goes to the, the heart of the presidency and of the president that just appointed him? I, I, I know that this—people are saying, oh, it looks so bad for him. I just think Trump shouldn't be speaking to the New York Times because nothing good can come of it. But— and and he doesn't have the mindset. I think he took this job. I think Donald Trump took this job as president, maybe somewhere thinking that eventually he would just he'd be successful enough that the hatred would not recede entirely, but but at least they'd stop trying to like you know haul him off and all and his family members and everyone else off to prison. I I start to worry that maybe he's underestimated the the ferocity of the hatred that the, that specifically the most powerful people in American media have for this president and certainly the most powerful people in the Democratic Party have for him. And they don't just want to see him fail in his agenda. They want to see him destroyed. They want to see his movement eradicated. Um, we've got more, including the talk about the finances. We're coming up with that. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. 
And I can even give you a little proof, team, of my theory that with Democrats, no good deed goes unpunished, that when you decide to hold yourself accountable because, you know, Republicans actually have standards and we need to uphold those standards, even if it means we're going to take a serious political loss because of it. Here's uh, Elizabeth Warren among the foremost figures of the Democratic Party and certainly a uh, top progressive leftist, uh, both in terms of her media reach and, and her influence in Democratic Party circles. Here's what she had to say about Attorney General Sessions. Do you want Jeff Sessions to quit? Oh, I'd be, I'd be very glad for Jeff Sessions to quit and to get someone else in as Attorney General of the United States. I believe very firmly that Jeff Sessions should not be the number one lawmaker in America. He is right now the one who is responsible for enforcing our laws, and his views on many of those laws, I think, head us in the wrong direction. Yeah, so she thinks Sessions is terrible anyway. I'm, I'm playing this audio for you to make the point that Okay, so if he hadn't recused himself, she'd just be adding that to, oh, and he should have recused himself from the the Russia investigation as well. I mean, it would be item number 17 on her list of 30 reasons why Jeff Sessions is terrible. Who cares? Well, Jeff Sessions cares. I don't know if it was because he was feeling the heat from the media or because he just wants to do the the right thing, even though, you know, even though. It uh, may cost may cost this this presidency in ways that we can't even really foresee, which brings me to the other part of this that is going to get very interesting and very messy. By the way, just wait until we have real leaks from the Mueller investigation. You, you think they're not going to be able to keep you or rather you think they're going to be able to keep all that stuff under wraps, all of the the happenings of the Mueller investigation? I don't think so. But finances, this has been. Uh, one of the areas of criticism of Trump from the very beginning. And it's also why we're somewhat numb to allegations that President Trump has violated the law, that he's a criminal, because there are so many crimes he's been allegedly committed, right? He uh, he, he violates the emoluments clause of the Constitution. He's uh, he's, violated the, uh, well, treason. (laughs) I say he's committed treason. Um, and they've been saying all along that there's also, you know, I didn't release his tax returns. He's getting payoffs from Russia. I mean, there's always the, the, so many crimes alleged to have been committed by, by Donald Trump. Uh, you know, c- collusion, which in the context they're talking about isn't really a crime, of course, is the one we know most, uh, we hear the most. But they've been saying all along that he's committed crimes, that he's been doing bad stuff. And not releasing his taxes has been one of the areas where they've really focused their their ire. There's been a lot of attention on Trump not releasing his taxes for all of them. Well, now it seems like, based on the reporting, and I should note, we should not know this. The special counsel, Mueller, as the for, you know, former FBI guy who is the special counsel, the special prosecutor, what he's doing in this investigation should not be a matter of public debate and discussion, but of course it is because people are talking. Uh, but they're asking now, because it's out there, uh, whether they're looking into Trump's finances. And sure enough, Trump spoke about this in that meeting with the New York Times. And here is what he said. So- Mueller was looking at your finances, your family's finances, unrelated to Russia. Is that a red line? Would that be a breach of what his actual... I would say yes. Yeah, I would say yes. 
by the way, I will say, I don't, I don't, I mean, it's possible that it's a condo or something. So, you know, I sell a lot of condo units mm -hmm. and somebody, somebody from Russia buys a condo, who knows. I don't make money from Russia. In fact, I put out a letter saying that I don't make from one of the most highly respected law firms and accounting firms. Um, I don't have buildings in Russia. They said I own buildings in Russia. I don't. They said I made money from Russia. No, it's not my thing. I don't, I don't do that. Over the years, I've looked at maybe doing a deal in Russia, but I never did one, you know. Other than they held them as universe pension there. I don't know why he's talking to the New York Times about this. I. I cannot give you a clear answer on that. It's it is very unlikely to to help himself. I mean, this is like everyone I know in law enforcement. Every cop I've ever talked to about this, and it's a it's always a fun discussion to have with them. The, the moment that the moment that a, a law enforcement officer comes over and wants to say other anything other than you know, I hope you're having a nice day or something. You really well, the moment you're placed under arrest, you you say nothing. Doesn't matter how eloquent you are, doesn't matter how brilliant, doesn't matter how innocent, it, it does not matter. The moment you are placed under arrest, you say nothing, and you really don't want to say anything before that either. But, you know, I can understand if someone comes, you know, if an officer comes up to you and says, you know, did you shove him and you're outside of a bar? Like, no, I didn't. I mean, you're going to defend yourself. But the moment that you're arrested, you've got to just shut your mouth. And that's just an ironclad rule. I've never heard anyone in law enforcement, a prosecutor, a cop, I've never heard anybody say otherwise. They're always just like, you know, and of course they want suspects to talk. So they're not going to tell you that if they arrest you. But if you're just asking them as a friend, you're like, hey, I'm just wondering, should I? With Trump in this New York Times thing, it's just there's no way this helps him. Now, maybe you'll say, Buck, you know what? He's Trump. It's not going to hurt him either. You know, MAGA, who cares? Okay, may, that may be true, but there's no way that it helps him. So I don't understand why he spends his time in there with them talking about this. But you'll notice that the finance issue has come up now. And this is why I've been concerned all along about the special prosecutor angle, because there's no way of knowing where this goes. And they can go back into Trump's finances for a very long way. And this, at some point, just turns into a... They need to find something. They're going to pretend that a thorough investigation, a thorough investigation that ends with no charges and no findings is okay, because otherwise we know the fix is in and it's politicized from the start. But the truth here is that the pressure on an investigation like this to come up with something, the Scooter Libby effect, if you will, they got to get someone Otherwise, what was the point of all of this? That pressure is very high. And so looking into finances and, you know, this is where I, I don't think it's necessarily going to be a problem for Trump, but someone somewhere is going down for this. That's what you're going to see. And it doesn't matter how low on the to uh, uh, how, how low on the uh, hierarchy they are. It doesn't matter. You know, they, they are going to they are going to find themselves in the very unfortunate spot of uh, federal investigation and possible federal charges of some kind or other which you know some of you're like buck if they've committed a crime then they should do the time and it's like well let me tell you you sit around long enough with the federal code and you go into someone's finances and you look through them endlessly you know you're it's you'd be surprised i mean there's even a book written i think it's called three felonies a day by a former defense attorney who's like people don't even know how much they're violating the law on a regular basis. They have no they have no idea how often they're violating the law. And if they did, they'd be 
petrified. I mean, normal, good people. I mean, you and me violating the law all the time. You know it or not. Um, in ways larger than you'd probably think, too, based on the federal code. Now you could say, Buck, a prosecutor wouldn't go with that. Or, you know, we can trust our prosecutors. Okay. Good luck with that one. Uh, So that's why I've always thought the process here was the punishment. The special counsel investigation is, uh, this is not not going to end well. Uh, It's not going to end well for the country. I don't know who it's going to ensnare in the meantime, but it will not end well. Uh, for the country and uh, oh by the way Trump also spoke uh, to the press and maybe this is why I think he's particularly annoyed about that report I think it was a CNN report I forget who broke it uh, that Trump was having this additional meeting at the G20 which the G20 is like a a, a, a a pageant for heads of state to just show up and wave and take photos but that Trump had this additional meeting there this is what he said to the New York Times about that so She's sitting next to Putin and somebody else. And that's the way it is. So the meal is going through. And toward dessert, I went down just to say hello to Melania. And while I was there, I said hello to Putin. Uh, really pleasantries, more than anything else. Uh, was not a long conversation, but it was, you know, it could be 15 minutes, just talked about things. Uh, we Actually, it was very interesting. We talked about adoption. Mm-hmm. He did. Russian adoption. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've always found that interesting because, you know, he ended that years ago. There we go again with, with Russian adoption and Trump giving the New York Times more information. I just, I have such a disdain for the dishonesty of many of these media organizations at this point that I would just find a, a personal revulsion, especially if I were in Donald Trump's shoes from sitting down there and, and sharing this information this way, but uh, he, he decided to do it. I I cannot explain it to you, my friends. Um, I'm st- uh, it's a head-scratcher for me. Uh, we've got a new, Demo- uh, at least report, of a new Democrat slogan that's pretty amazingly bad, so we'll talk about that. And also, I haven't yet discussed here on the show, and I want to, uh, this shooting of a of a young of a woman i believe she was engaged to be married soon an australian born woman in minneapolis that there's there's strange things happening here with the way that we haven't heard very much and they they just did a press conference uh, earlier today the police in minneapolis did a press conference but the way the media is running with this there are some questions that i want to ask and i want to put forward some some thoughts on that because this is being treated very differently than other shootings, that much I can tell you, and I think you're seeing uh, the media's political agenda and the agenda of their leftist narrative at work in that in in some of how they've covered at least that shooting. So I will talk about that in the next hour, um, and we've got a lot more. So eight four four nine hundred two eight two five eight four four nine hundred buck. Also on Facebook, facebook.com slash buck sexton. Post there, follow me there. Any thoughts, you can uh, send me a message there. I read them and I appreciate them. And we will be right back. Months of polling and deliberations and focus group testing and paying all kinds of consultants, all that stuff. Oh, yeah. Democrats for their big comeback in 2018. The midterms, baby. Democrats have a new slogan they would like to uh, unveil for us all. 
this coming from a reporter at Vox. Uh, their new slogan is, A better deal, better skills, better jobs, better wages. Uh, not exactly inspiring, a little long, a little repetitive, and sounds a bit like the Papa John's slogan, right? Better ingredients, better pizza. Which, by the way, that's actually a pretty good slogan. A better deal, better skills, better jobs, better wages is a little long. Uh, they might as well just call it better. The Democrat Party, we're better. That's really all they offer, by the way, is that they're better than the Republicans. They don't have any big new ideas. Obamacare was the big idea. Obamacare and amnesty, but amnesty they can't be open about. So I don't really know uh, what they're going to run on other than class warfare, uh, resentment, uh, political tribalism, which exists very much on both sides, to be fair. But uh, but class warfare stuff, for sure. Um, maybe some single payer. I don't know. I'm trying to think what else. Uh, more about fair share, wealth redistribution. Uh, what do Democrats stand for these days? It's a good question. You don't hear much about it other than, you know, Russia and Trump and oh my. A lot of lines lit. Let's take some calls here. Uh, we've got Barry in Mississippi on WBUV. Hey, Barry. Hey, Buck. How are you? I'm good, man. Thank you for calling in. Uh, I am a uh, talk radio junkie and you are doing a great job, Buck. Great job. Thank you, sir. Uh, and you're your question about new Trump's interview with New York Times. My theory is he's been doing interviews one on ones for several weeks. Uh, Fox and Friends a couple of weeks ago. Last week he did the Christian guy. I think maybe New York Times was just the next uh, next in line. He just you know gave him their shot. He's kind of naive about that kind of stuff, you know, and and so maybe he just went ahead and did it. But it sounds like and, Barry, uh, you agree with me that it is strategically unwise for the president just to show up and take questions from the New York Times in their in, on their home turf in that way. I just don't think that's a good idea. It sounds yeah, like you don't think I, it's a good idea I, either. Yeah, he's naive. He feels like if I just tell the truth, I'll be fine. Right. That's what I mean. Uh, he feels like he I, I think the big the president's biggest problem with the Russia stuff is he's like, I'm innocent. So what problems can I have here? Meanwhile, what I was trying to say before is I know law enforcement officers who will tell you, even if you are completely innocent, if somebody asks you, and, you know, they're they're trying to figure out stuff about, uh, you know, a, a, a murder that happened somewhere last night. If they ask you, hey, where were you last night? You know, you just you want a lawyer present. Don't you don't say anything. And, you know, on the Sessions thing, Trump and others are forgetting that Sessions said I took part in the election. So I'm going to recuse myself from investigating the election. That's all he really he took himself out of. Now, the, the assistant, the deputy appointing the special prosecutor, that was really bonehead. and makes you wonder what team he's on. Uh, he's supposed to be independent, you know, but I don't I don't really believe that. But but let's not forget Trump only. I mean, uh, Sessions only recused himself from investigating the election, which seems normal, seems right to me. He's still free to investigate anybody else or any other. Yeah, but that means anything that touches on Russia, he can't touch. Right. That's the that's what the I recusal guess, will I cover. Guess. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I, I think, look, I think it was a mistake, but I, there was a lot of pressure at the time, and Democrats were like, oh, just, just recuse yourself, Sessions, and then we'll respect you. It's not how it happens. Barry Shields, hi, man. Thank you for calling in. Ron, up in Alaska, K E N I. What's going on? Hey, how you doing? I'm good. Uh, I'm, it's an honor to talk to you, and we listen to you every day up in the wilderness. We're 80 miles from a nearest road or town, and and uh well god bless it's an honor to talk to you sir thank you for listening 
I'm a retired U.S. Navy chief warrant officer, a Vietnam vet, uh, and so I'm getting up there in age a little bit. But I wanted to tell your listeners that the American people, and I'm talking a lot of people I talk to around the country, friends, relatives, veterans, we are sick and tired of what's going on up in the the Congress and the Senate uh, in Washington. And we're past that up. The country's hurting. And all they're doing is they're trying, the people that want to hurt this country are trying to damage the president and the vice president and their administration. It's got to end. And I'd love to fly to Washington, and I'd love to talk to uh, Chuck Schumer and, and, and the Republican side, and I'd like to address both of them. And I'd like to tell them what the issues really are in this country. Uh, we've got to fix things. And we've got big fires going on, and I'm using that as an example, but around the country. And all they're doing uh, up there in Washington, and I'm going to say it like it is, the Democrats, they're, they're, they're uh, playing games. Now, these people are being paid. Maybe we need to cut their money off. I don't know. But we might, we definitely got to think about throwing some of them out of office at the next election because they're not. Look, they're breaking their promises. Republicans are breaking their promises, Ron. They're just not being honest. uh, Lisa, Lisa Murkowski is done as far as I'm concerned. She'll never get my vote, my wife's vote. And and I'm hearing from everybody in Alaska that I know. It's a red state uh, Republican. And she's turned her back on our president so many times that that I don't want to hate her. I just don't want her around no more. <laughs> well, fair enough, around. Ron. Shield time, and thank you for calling in from uh, up up north in Alaska. I appreciate it. Um, I, I want to talk to you all about uh, this shooting up in uh, Minnesota that happened. Police officer involved shooting. Very different treatment of this in the media, which raises some interesting questions. Uh, tragic. This young woman, this Australian woman, was shot for from what everyone has seen and been reported so far. Absolutely no reason. Uh, and uh, we'll talk about that. We'll also be joined by uh, Ben Shapiro for some analysis of all the latest news from today. And then, of course, uh, after that, OJ's parole hearing. We'll get there, and we'll be right back. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. The Buck is back. Here are the facts of the case as we know them. On uh, July uh, July the 15th, uh, a woman in Minneapolis called 911 and said the following, Hi, uh, I can hear someone out the back, and I'm not sure if she's having sex or being raped. The operator said, Give me the address. The caller gave an address. The operator said, you said it's behind that address. The caller says, and there's something out back. Yup, yup. I think she just yelled out help, but it's difficult. The sound has been going on for a while, but I think, I don't know. I think it's, I don't know. Uh, Okay, already got a call started and help on the way. This is the operator. You can't see anything. You're just hearing a female screaming then. Is that what you're saying? Caller, yeah, it sounds like sex noises, but it's been going on for a while, and I think she tried to say help, and it sounds distressed. Operator, okay, I've got an officer on the way. What is your name? Caller, Justine. Operator, Justine, what's your last name uh, and phone number? And then the operator said, okay, we've got help on the way. If anything changes before we get there, just give us a call right back, but officers should be there soon. 
Officers did arrive soon, and they pulled into this alley behind Justine Damon's house, and they didn't have their lights on. And Justine, based on the accounts that we have, in her pajamas, went up to the patrol car, went up to the uh, the driver's side with two officers in it, and Officer Mohammed Noor, who is in the passenger seat, inexplicably, still to this point, drew his firearm and shot Justine Damon in the abdomen, and she bled out and died at the scene within minutes after this incident. The officers in the vehicle did not have their body cameras turned on, which they were supposed to, and their dash camera for the vehicle also did not capture any of the incident. So that was a few days ago. The officer, Mohammed Noor, has not given any statement to state investigators. It's been days. There are reports that he's been talking to friends about this, but he will not give an official statement as to why he shot an unarmed woman at the uh, driver's side of a police vehicle. Keep in mind, across the body of his partner. So he just pulled out the gun inside the car, shot through the window across his partner, and killed this woman. We have... No beginnings of an explanation as to why this happened, how this could have happened. And in fact, the uh, police chief in Minneapolis just gave a press conference and repeated a few times that uh, Justine Damon didn't have to die. She didn't have to die. That much is clear. Didn't have to die. Shouldn't have died. Something went very, very wrong here. You're not seeing much of a media outcry on this issue. Uh, A woman, she's Australian-born, murdered by a police officer without anyone even being able to begin to articulate what a threat might have been. Or, you know, think about the way the press treats police-involved shootings when there's actually a gun involved with the person who was shot. Think about the way the press has treated shootings where there is an individual who is African-American who has had an altercation with a police officer. Well, there's nonstop wall-to-wall coverage. There are protests. In fact, sometimes there are riots. In the case of Mike Brown, you look at these cases. In the case of Eric Garner, uh, there are circumstances that are not yet necessarily entirely known, but... At at least there's a narrative on the police side and a narrative on the victim side as to what happened. And we need to get to the facts and get to the truth of what it was. The media, of course, doesn't wait for that. They run with the narrative before we know the full facts. But at least you can see what the story is. You have a a broad understanding of how maybe it happened. This is just beyond anything we've seen with these uh, major national uh, nationally covered cases of police violence and i would want to know why and i think that we can begin to see the why because once again major media outlets are pushing a political narrative the narrative of course when it comes to police violence when it comes to black lives matter is that police are indiscriminately 
I sh- actually no, I, per- I take that back. Discriminately, with with discrimination, with animus, killing young black men because of racism. That's that's the underlying thesis, the the baseline, the foundational thesis of Black Lives Matter, that police kill uh, young black men without cause or justification because of racism. And so even when there are cases that could be entirely justified uses of police force or a case that involves a a police officer who is himself a minority, none of that changes the way the press initially will treat it if the subject is, in fact, a young African-American male. And especially if there is any video or audio of it, then it becomes a national news, a national news story. Why is this one being treated differently? Why have I'm sure many of you listening right now not heard about uh, young Justine Damon engaged to be married next month who was shot and killed by a police officer for the, uh, the act of walking up to the police cruiser that she had called to investigate a possible disturbance. But you haven't heard of this, most likely. I would, I would, I would wager that very few of you listening right now have. And it wouldn't be for any reason other than not a lot of media coverage of this. Not a lot of time spent on this. Now, I don't have all of the answers as to why that is, but I think we can begin to see some, some early evidence as to what, what is different about the narrative here. What, because if your real goal is police reform, one would think that murdering an unarmed woman would be an opportunity for those who are pushing for police reform to raise the issue, right? Wouldn't this be a time to say that we need, well, police here had body cameras but didn't turn them on, but we need to revise police tactics or we need to look at what happened here. We need to look at police use of force. I mean, Whether you agree that that's a widespread problem or not, I'm just saying the activists, the so-called activists who are always telling us that there needs to be a a new look at police tactics because of violence that we are all suffering at the hands of police, uh, predominantly violence against uh, minority men, but nonetheless, police violence, police brutality. These are the rallying cries. These are on the placards. I've seen them. I've seen the protests. I've heard the rhetoric. And yet not much of a rallying around this case. Why is that? Well, of course, the woman in this instance is... Uh, a Caucasian female, and from what we know of the shooter, he is a uh, a Somali American who was at one point celebrated by uh, Mayor Betsy Hodges of Minneapolis specifically for his contribution for being one of a very small number of uh, Muslim Somali uh, Minnesotans on the police force, and you get stories. From the Washington Post. Keep in mind. So this woman is killed. She's killed. And no one is even beginning, including the shooter, to offer up any explanation of this whatsoever. She was just shot and murdered in cold blood outside of her home. And based on everything we know, you could say, Buck, all the facts are in. Well, there's no contrary narrative. And by the way, if you had seen, and I did catch some of it, that uh, press conference that was given by the Minneapolis Police Department. They're like, uh, didn't have to die. This was not good. Those body cameras should have been on. There's a problem here. I mean, they are they are not standing up saying, well, it, it was a, an understandable mistake under the circumstances. Far from it. I think, I think they're getting ready to most likely have an indictment here for uh, manslaughter. 
And that's based on all the facts we've seen, certainly seems to be warranted here. But the way the media covers this is instructive. Here's how the Washington Post wrote about it just a couple of days ago. So within 48 within 48 hours of the shooting, this woman's fiance, this woman's family are still uh, trying to deal with the the horrific grief. But the concern that the Washington Post has is for the shooter. Let let that sink in for a moment. The, the Washington Post is running stories about how worried they are about the shooter and the shooter's community. Remember, the shooter's a police officer here. How, how often have you seen this in the past? Have you ever seen a police-involved shooting where it looked like the police officer was well in the wrong, clearly in the wrong, and a major newspaper is writing about how, well, you know, this is this is really a shame. It's going to look really bad for that police officer in his department, and it's going to look really bad for, you know, whatever other categorization they want to make about that officer or whatever other grouping they put him in. We feel really badly for that officer. You, have you ever read that before? I, I'm just, I'm wondering. Have you ever seen something along those lines in an incident like this where somebody was shot and killed by an officer who may have committed manslaughter? I'm I just rack your brain for a second. Just think about it. Okay. So here's what the Washington Post writes. After Minneapolis police officer uh in uh, Minneapolis officer and police shooting is named, Somali community braces for backlash. Here's more of this piece. When Mohammed Noor joined the Minneapolis police force and was assigned to patrol the city's southwest corner, the Somali community there, the nation's largest, threw a party for him to celebrate. He was the first Somali-American officer to serve in Minneapolis' 5th Precinct and one of fewer than a dozen Somali-American officers in the department. His presence on the squad brought Somali activists some pride and reassurance at a time of Islamophobia in America and nationwide racial tension stoked in part by shootings of black people by white police officers. Now that same Somali community is bracing for a backlash against Noor that has already begun. Do, do, you, do you think that any other police officer gets the benefit of the Washington Post writing uh, highly sympathetic profiles and, and um, creating as much of a perception of sympathy as as possible for that officer before the officer's even been willing to make a statement, by the way. Officer, we're not going to say anything to anybody, including state investigators right now. I don't, I don't even know how that's possible, but that's where it is. You, you think they run those editorials for any other police officer? So, okay, so now we have we have different standards for cops based on, we already knew in the past, right, if a young African-American is shot by a police officer, the, the race, the ethnicity of the officer actually doesn't necessarily matter because the, the narrative is that the police are, are racist, including minority members of the police department. That's the, that's the leftist narrative on that. But now, when it's a, a Muslim African-American uh, police officer who does the shooting, we have to be on guard for Islamophobia, that's that's what remember this is within two days of the shooting he's not even he's not explaining it he's not telling anybody what happened he's not even trying to give his side of events yet and and but the problem what the washington post is worried about is not police violence here it's not a woman was apparently uh killed for no reason at all manslaughter um 
the the real the real concern here is that there'll be a, there'll be some mean things that people write on social media about the Somali American community in Minnesota. That's the real that's what the real problem is here. You know, I just I thought that it was about police violence and body cams and police brutality. I thought that was the leftist narrative. Oh, okay. You see, you always have to remember the hierarchy. And in the left's hierarchy, dealing with police violence as a general concept is 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 below is below rallying around the Muslim community and rallying around the uh, African-American community in this country. In this case, specifically the Somali-American community in this country. It's it's a lower priority than showing solidarity with those communities and, and concerns about Islam, concerns about Islamophobia specifically. So that's what this is. That's how the balancing works. It's not it's really not about police violence as just an issue that the whole country needs to be focused on. And whether, by the way, whether you believe that or not, I mean, I've had people on the show to talk to you about how police in this country are actually remarkably uh, Good at their jobs, um, not quick to pull the trigger, not quick to draw their firearms. Uh, America likes its police. Not always reflected in the way the media writes about our police. And look, I'm very open about the fact that I work for the NYPD for a while. So, of course, I like the police. But uh, here we have an incident where the cop is getting a, more than the benefit of the doubt. They're running interference for him. They're running stories. Oh, you know, weepy eyed stories, not for the victim who was just murdered. But for the cop who doesn't want to say anything about it, who shot her while she was standing at in her pajamas next to the cruiser, another officer in the vehicle. He didn't draw his gun. He didn't even think there was a problem. I just I, I think we I think we deserve more answers here, don't we? Maybe a little more media scrutiny. Maybe we just tone it down, go from a go from taking it at 100 to maybe just like 70 on the Russia collusion stuff for a day so we can hear about this. Because I thought police interactions with civilians was a major issue for the national media. But apparently this time around, not so much. Gee, I wonder why. Team, I uh, meant to bring this up earlier, by the way, because you're going to see a lot of talk about the. Uh, uh, the testimony of Donald Trump Jr. before the Senate Judiciary Committee, Paul Manafort, Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, you're not going to see or hear, but you may get some leaks in the media about uh, Trump advisor and son-in-law Jared Kushner's testimony before the Senate Intelligence Committee coming up uh, next week. But there's another issue here from the uh, from the Comey files. Uh, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein did say something that may may come up and be a little bit of an issue for Mr. Comey here. It Ever be proper for an FBI director to make notes of a conversation in that regard and leak them to the press? Would that ever be proper? Those are two different issues. Uh, you know, as a general proposition, you have to understand the Department of Justice, we take confidentiality seriously. And so when we have memoranda about our ongoing matters, we have an obligation to keep that confidential. So I would take from that that you would you would not approve of any releasing of memorandum written in an interview or discussion with the president to the press. The general proposition, I think, is quite clear, and it's what we were taught, all of us as prosecutors and agents, that we have an obligation to keep information confidential. I think that's critical for a variety of reasons. You know, we have a responsibility to the people who we're investigating. We have a responsibility to the people conducting those investigations to keep our investigations confidential. So Comey, who is being held up by the press now, remember, just go back. It's a fun game to play. If you look at some of the loudest voices for editorial columnists and uh, talking heads and radio hosts and whomever, 
how how they how they were describing Comey after the press conference where he said no charges for Hillary, then how they were describing Comey after the uh, reopening, the temporary reopening of the Hillary investigation right before the election, and then how they describe Comey after he comes out and does all this stuff about the Trump uh, memo and all this other uh, Comey stuff that's been going on. Um, you see people just complete turning themselves into total hacks, wh- whatever they can do. To, to ride the Comey wave when they can and then to uh, to to just move as far away from when they have to as they as they can. Uh, that's that's been very instructive, I think, to see how dishonest and dishonorable the press can be. Um, but this is keep this in mind. He's also writing a book, by the way, he's shopping it around. It's going to get a lot of money. I, I always think it's so interesting. These former government official memoirs are almost uniformly insanely boring. And yet publishing houses as a, I guess it's uh, considered a, almost a vanity piece for them or a, um, uh, a pre- not vanity piece isn't the right word, prestige piece. You know, they just, they have to have former senior so-and-so's memoir. And I mean, these memoirs usually are just, like I'm not going to lie to you, George Bush's memoir was not, it was not, it was not a great read. It was kind of like, wah, wah. Uh, never mind. Cl- I mean, the Clinton memoirs—all four thousand of them that you know Hillary's had ghostwriters put out for her. I think she had seventeen books written. Hillary Clinton's had had them written, right? Uh, they're just one is more more painful to read than the next. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that the Comey the Comey memo situation—that just keep an eye on that. He's not going to get prosecuted for it, but it's going to come up in the uh, months ahead. You'll see. We've got more. Stay with me. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. So Kentucky Senator Rand Paul and health care. Let's get into it, shall we? Rand Paul is, uh, according to the Hill newspaper, is opening the door to helping GOP leadership get a health care bill over a key procedural hurdle. The Kentucky Republican said on Thursday that he would support the motion to proceed to the House passed health care bill which is being used as a vehicle for any action if he could get a deal on amendments. If they want my vote, they have to at least agree that we're going to have a vote on clean repeal, Paul told reporters. And, quote, okay, so we will see if they actually get to a repeal vote. Part of the problem with the way the whole health care debate goes is here's how Republicans talk about the uh, the health care bill, Obamacare, and here's just sort of the, the general tone. And look, I think Mulvaney is a is a competent guy and and is doing a pretty good job. But, but here's a version of of how Republicans discuss the issue. In mind that Jonathan Gruber, who helped fashion Obamacare, his methodology is still being used by the CBO to measure the replacement and the repeal bill. So it's it's almost like that it's not a fair analysis. Um, and we could give examples. I've talked before about how they assume at CBO that if you're on Medicaid and you're getting that program for free and the federal mandate to, to have insurance goes away, that you will give up that free program and choose to be uninsured, which is just, it's just nonsensical until you realize the methodology that they're using. So, look, the CBO is doing their job. They're doing the best job they can, given the methodologies that they're required to use. Um, but uh, I don't think anybody around here is making their decisions based upon the right. CBO score. All right. So uh, astute analysis, although I, I think I could hear some of you kind of falling asleep during that. I don't think you were particularly fired up by it, right? I mean, what he's saying is true, 
and he's using words like methodology. Uh, and I'm not I'm not putting him down for speaking to the American people or speaking to the press uh, about this issue like adults and basing it on facts and reason and logic. But here's how Democrats talk about the health care bill. We haven't seen the CBO report yet. Uh, we do know that the uh, many more people, millions, hundreds of thousands of people will die if this bill passes. Hundreds of thousands will die, says Nancy Pelosi. Bernie Sanders, senator from Vermont, says, yeah, pretty much the same thing. Thousands of Americans will die. If you are sick, if you have a chronic illness and you can't get the kind of care you need, you die. Or maybe you will just suffer year after year after year. It's the worst piece of legislation. And by the way, Bernie Sanders later went on to uh, to deny that he ever said that the health care bill would kill people. Because if you're going to sit down with people on both sides of the aisle, some Democrats have branded Republicans the party of death, for example, calling the tax cuts in the Senate health care bill blood money. Uh, you yourself have said Republicans are potentially killing Americans. Is that rhetoric irresponsible? And does it provide an impasse to compromise? If you're going to sit very people that you've now said want to kill people. Speak, no, I never said that's not you're using rhetoric that I didn't use. Oh, am okay, I? These are I quotes. Said, what I said is, is me, this is what I said. What I said, and it's not me. This is a dozen or more studies. A dozen or more, he says. Wait, but what, what did he say again? Thousands of Americans will die. If you yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's, that's saying people will die. I didn't say that. Dozens of studies didn't say that thing that I said. But, you know, whatever. Um, so, yes, but that's how that's how Democrats do this. They talk about how Republicans want to kill people. Republicans are mean. They want grandma to get rolled off the cliff in her wheelchair. They want poor people to have their teeth rotting out of their heads and not get, you know, not get emergency room care. And that's how they you know, see. So we got the Mulvaney approach. Well, the methodology is going to be very complicated here because the CBO projections for Medicaid funding stretching out for a decade. And then you have Bernie Sanders like they want to kill so many thousands of people, they're all going to die. And, you know, if, if you're not somebody that spends a lot of time sitting around looking at spreadsheets of, of health care costs and the long-term growth in federal health care spending as a function of GDP and blah 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 you know, you got on the one side people saying, well, they, they want people to die. On the other side, you got people that are talking about numbers and, you know, budget, fiscal responsibility. Where are the Republicans who are standing up and saying, you know what it would mean if we got rid of all this stuff? It would actually be cheaper to go to the doctor. You know what it would mean if doctors had to deal with real market competition? They wouldn't be able to keep you there waiting for two hours because the next time you'd go to a different doctor. Well, if your plan only lets you see one doctor or one specialist in your area and that specialist makes you wait two hours, that specialist makes you uh, pay out of pocket for things you don't even need to do that weren't even necessary and didn't even tell you about it. That specialist, maybe even I've had this happen, just cancels your appointment. I'm sorry, you know the doctor had to, the doctor had to go to the Hamptons early today, uh, but but I'm here. What what do you mean? You know, if there were real market forces at work, that would be less likely to happen. Healthcare would be cheaper. An MRI wouldn't cost today basically what an MRI cost 20 or 30 years ago. I mean, you know, these these are machines that like stretch back in terms of their technology, the basic technology to the, you know, the days when the when the Berlin Wall was still up. And yet here we are, 
you still get a massive fee or massive bill rather from uh, hospitals for outdated services. And you, know, you all know about you know the thirty dollar Advil pill and all this stuff, right? I mean, the, the market can fix this, but no one's making the compelling case for it right now. In fact, everyone's just making a case that they can do a better version, a better version of the government making these decisions. The reality has to be somebody standing up and telling the American people that you're going to be able to make more of these decisions. American ingenuity and the forces of the free market and capitalism will do much more for you than the government ever will when it comes to the provision of excellent, efficient, timely, effective health care. But that means that you're going to have to deal with, you know, paying a little more for health care as a general proposition it's going to mean that it's not just a copay every time you go in, and it's going to mean that you know you can't expect that the government is going to just you know take care of all this stuff. But that's just not popular right now. It's so much easier to say, "Oh no, we're gonna we're gonna turn healthcare into the uh, the giant endless you know cake that you can eat as much as you want. It doesn't make you fat, and in fact, it makes you stronger, and it never runs out. That that's a lie. But healthcare in America right now is largely built on lies. All right, we're going to hit a break here. We're going to talk to Ben Shapiro in a minute. Stay with me. Welcome back, everyone. We have Ben Shapiro joining us now. He's editor-in-chief of DailyWire.com. He's a syndicated columnist, host of The Ben Shapiro Show, also writes a column for National Review. Ben, great to have you back. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, tell me about your piece on The Daily Wire. Only 45% of Republicans think Trump Jr. met with Russia, but here's why that number isn't nuts. Okay, so... The, the fact is, Trump Jr. did meet with Russia. I mean, he talked about it. He admitted it in emails. There, there's no real controversy that he met with at least people who were claiming to be emissaries of the Russian government. But the reason that, that isn't nuts that only 45 percent of, of Republicans are saying that the meeting happened is because the real truth is that most Republicans who are now answering pollsters are answering the pollsters' motives. They're not answering the pollsters' question. So we all know when we get a, a question from a pollster, do you think Donald Trump Jr. met with Russia? What we're really hearing is, do you think it is important that Donald Trump Jr. met with this this Russian lawyer? And our answer is no. So it's, so what we're doing now is we are reading into what we perceive the motives of the pollsters to be, which is not a terrible thing to do, considering the pollsters do have motives. It's not going to give you you know particularly answerable results, uh, verifiable results. But the, I think that there is a lot of that going on. I think when people talk to pollsters these days about whether you approve or disapprove of Trump, uh, there are a strong number of people who are going to say that they approve of Trump just to say F you to the to the pollsters. Uh, and I think that there's you know a, a lot of that when it comes to policy uh, or if there's a if there's a poll about Trump's tweets, you know, like you may think, OK, well, I thought to myself, I didn't really like that particular tweet. But the pollster who's calling up, he's just looking for an excuse to rip Trump. So forget it. I'm not going to be part of that. So I'll just say that I loved Trump's tweet. I think there's. That mentality has settled in on the right a little bit, and I don't think it's completely unjustified. Speaking of polls, you also have up on Daily Wire that a vast majority of Americans think government has to ensure universal health insurance. Ben, I feel like this is the part of the health care debate that doesn't get nearly enough attention, and that is that, for the most part now, both sides of the political aisle are going along with the idea that, that, that the government has to provide everybody with, with not really even health insurance, but actually health care. Yeah, well, people have identified health insurance with health care. They think health coverage means that they're going to be provided health care, even though people are covered by Medicaid. And that doesn't mean that they actually achieve health care any better than they would if they just went into the emergency room. Uh, What the poll shows is that three out of 10 Republicans say that it is the government's job to provide health coverage for everyone. 
Uh, one of those three and ten Republicans is probably President Trump. I mean, President Trump said back in January very openly that he thinks that any plan he proposes is going to end with universal coverage, everyone being able to get coverage regardless of what they can afford to bear. Well, once you say that, the Democrats have won. I mean, then you're at single payer. It's just a question of how fast you get there, how quickly you achieve it. And this has been the, the fundamental disconnect on the right. Like, you expected this sort of stuff from the left, but the right has bought into the concept that government's job is to ensure that everyone has health coverage. And once you do that, then you're only going to be able to do that through an individual mandate or through actual nationalization of the healthcare system. Those are the only two options. There is no third option. You're, you can have quality and affordability, but not universality if you have a free market. But if you don't have, but, but if you want universality, the only way to get it is to force people to buy health insurance or to, uh, or to just nationalize the system entirely and then cover people whether they want it or not. At a very simplified level, this just comes down to if you let people make a choice to get health insurance or not, despite all the incentives, all the subsidies, all the things that you can do as a government, short of literally mandating it, some people will choose not to have insurance. And that means that some people will go bankrupt when they need medical care. But the government doesn't want to say that. That's right. And, and one of the things that's really crazy is that Republicans won't even say that. So when you have the CBO reports coming out about various versions of the Republican bill that have been presented, and it'll say 22 million more people will be uninsured. And then you look in the bill, in, in the CBO report, and, and it'll say two-thirds of those people will drop out because there's no longer the individual mandate. What that means is that there are 14 million or 15 million people who are saying they don't want to buy insurance and are currently being forced by law to buy insurance. That's not a, a, a good thing. That's a bad thing. But, it, but, the, it, but even the Republicans are too wary of stepping on toes to make the case that, of course, universal insurance should not be the goal. The goal should be quality and affordability so that you can get it if you want it, but that you have to make responsible decisions in order to be able to get health insurance when you're healthy. And the truth is the vast majority of people in the United States already have preexisting conditions. It's called having employer-based insurance. I mean, we're all in group insurance programs if you have a job. The individual insurance market is like 8% of the entire population. So we're talking about remaking the entire health insurance system, the entire health care system, actually. We're talking about doing all of that for what is it best, 4 or 5% of the population, because there's still a bunch of people who aren't covered. What do you think the GOP senators should do at this stage of the game, considering that uh, Mitch McConnell looks like he's just flailing at this point? Uh, they've said they may go forward with an actual, uh, an actual repeal instead of just calling some new bill a repeal. What do you think they should do? What do you think they will do, Ben? I mean, I hope that they go through it with a, with a full-scale repeal. There's a question of what they can do under reconciliation. So they can try and push through a repeal bill that repeals the regulations of Obamacare plus the taxes plus the mandates. That would be my preferred option. Right now, what they're talking about in their current repeal bill is getting rid of these subsidies, getting rid of the mandates, getting rid of the taxes, but leaving the regulations in place, which is why you're seeing those CBO estimates that really inflate insurance costs. If you're still forcing insurance companies to cover preexisting conditions, but there are no subsidies uh, and there's no mandate, then, of course, the costs are going to rise dramatically. So it depends on the bill they present. They should try and push a full repeal, but the question is, can they legally do that under reconciliation? Uh, if not, I think that you know, going back to the drawing board with the bill that they had in the Senate, even though I don't like the bill particularly much, I don't think that it repeals Obamacare, the big question here is not whether it repeals Obamacare. The big question is whether it is better or worse, and they should stop using the word repeal and replace. They should just say, listen, what we've got here is a bad system. It's going to take us a while to get back to a free market system because too many people are dependent. So as a first transitory step, here's what we're going to do, right? And then even I, who, who want a full-scale repeal, like right off the bat, I would say, okay, well, if this is the first step, then I'm willing to give you a little bit of rope. But if you're going to tell me that this is full-scale repeal and then you're going to sell me something that's not repeal, then the answer is no. I'm not going to let you 
say as a final step that this is your replacement solution when it leaves all of the Obamacare regulations in place. We're speaking to Ben Shapiro. He's editor-in-chief of DailyWire.com and host of The Ben Shapiro Show. Ben, uh, Bill Nye has said that old people, this is up on DailyWire.com, old people have to die for us to stop global warming. I tried to watch some of his show on Netflix, and I'm actually somebody who really likes Netflix. It made me think maybe I should just cut off my Netflix uh, subscription. It was so unwatchably terrible. Bill Nye saves the world. But this broader theme of save the world, uh, have less children, save the world, um, old people have to die. The left says this stuff with more regularity, it feels like these days. NPR just tweeted out, I think the last 24 hours, the ways that you can help save the world from you know CO2, global warming, and it's be a vegetarian, have less kids, take less plane rides, don't drive cars. Wow. Uh, this is stuff that a normal person would say you're crazy, but yet this is becoming mainstream on the left. It has been mainstream for a while, really. Yeah, it, it has been mainstream. I mentioned that that Oprah Winfrey said the same thing about race back in 2013. That, that in 2013, Oprah Winfrey said that all the old white people are going to have to die in order for racism to die. The left seems very wedded to this idea that if the populations they don't like would just die out, everything will be okay. That seems like a pretty sick, perverse perspective. And we on the right will always joke, okay, well, if the leftists don't have any kids, then in a generation we'll have beaten them demographically. But we don't actually want leftists not to have kids. We like kids, okay? We're anti-abortion. We like kids. We'd like for people to have kids. Uh, this, this push by the left that we're not going to try and convince you. We're just going to wait until the people we don't like get old and die. Uh, it's not a particularly Republican notion, like small R Republican notion. No, it, it, it's certainly not. But I, I'm surprised to see how open it is these days that, as you point out, that older populations, uh, children don't have babies. There's nothing that is too much for the global warming cult to put forward. You can you can justify anything under the rubric of, well, it's saving the planet. And that's not an exaggeration. That's why with Bill Nye Saves the World with his show, they say some crazy stuff on there. Oh, yeah. I mean, beyond all the, the global warming stuff, uh, they also think they're saving the world by telling people that really their their innate desires to have sex with everything up to and including trees. You know, it, it, it's really an awful show. I mean, it's, it, if you even watch one segment of it, it was nominated for an Emmy. I mean, you, know, you watch one segment of it and, and you feel like you've lost half your brain power immediately, which may in fact be the plan. Maybe the plan is to actually soul suck everybody who watches this show. And then eventually it's like invasion of the body snatchers and Bill Nye just seizes whatever is left of your of your central nervous system and, and uses it to control you, because I can't explain otherwise why anyone would think the show is good. Before we can let you go, Ben, to do a battle with social justice warriors across the country and, uh, and on the interwebs, you got to tell us about what's going on with Berkeley College. Sounds like you're the latest conservative to get uh, the to get the what the, the slow roll treatment. Are they banning you? Are you going? What's happening? Yeah. So, I mean, basically, it's the slow roll treatment. So what, what they said was, uh, we, I was supposed to speak in September for, for Berkeley. I spoke there last year, no problem, right? And no, no protesters, nothing. Uh, this year, we had, we had put in all the paperwork. Uh, CRs, the College Republicans, had put in all the paperwork, sponsored by Young Americans Foundation. They gave them a 10-week notice and said, you know, we'd like one of these venues. And Berkeley got back and said, none of those venues are available, not available on the day. We'll get back to you later. And so it, this is exactly the same sort of thing they did with Ann Coulter. They kept pushing, okay, we're going to try this venue, and then we'll do a different date, but that date isn't going to work, so maybe we'll do it in the middle of the day, and maybe we won't really give you a big venue. And so they're kind of, they were, they're kind of jerking us around. We still haven't heard back formally from them. They're now saying in the press, 
that they are going to facilitate the event, make sure that it happens with a venue of the appropriate size. I certainly hope that's the case, because if not, we're going to sue them. So I mean, <laughs> those are those are their two choices. So The, the, the um, disadvantages, I, folks, of infringing on a, on a lawyer's First Amendment rights, uh, <laughs> there you have it. It's not a good idea. Ben Shapiro, everybody, check out his latest on DailyWire.com, where he's the editor-in-chief. Also, you can listen to the Ben Shapiro Show. Ben, always appreciate you making the time for us. Thank you, sir. Thanks so much. Team, we are going to hit a break. Going to talk to you about uh, the O.J. Simpson parole hearing today and oh so much more in just a few. Stay with me. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. My vote is to grant your parole effective when eligible. And I concur with Commissioner Corda and grant parole. And in addition, our decision, although difficult, is fair and just. I concur with Commissioner Corda and agree to grant parole. Mr. Simpson, I do vote to grant parole when eligible, and that will conclude this hearing. Well, O.J. Simpson's getting out, everybody. His parole hearing was today, and there was a temporary pause even over at CNN in Russia-Trump collusion coverage to uh, really engage in a bit of 90s crime drama nostalgia uh, for the O.J. Simpson trial back in 1994. Uh, So O.J. had his parole hearing. He is, in fact, now scheduled to get out of prison. He's serving a 9- to 33-year sentence for an armed robbery in Las Vegas where he said he was trying to get back memorabilia and personal effects. He has served nine years of that sentence. And he'll be out on parole starting in October. Uh, You know, the the O.J. First of all, I wanted to just play for you. This is what O.J. Simpson said in his own uh, in support of his of his parole today during the hearing. And I think jaws were dropping all across the country. Interested in any in any of that. Uh, I've done my time. You know, I've done it as well and as respectfully as I think anybody can. I think if you talk to the wardens them, they'll tell you I've been, I I, I gave them my word. I believe in the jury system. I've honored their verdict. I have not complained for nine years. All I've done is try to be helpful and uh, encourage the guys around there, hey, man, do your time, uh, fight in court, and don't do anything that's going to extend your time. And that's the life I've tried to live because I want to get back to my kids. So sure enough, uh, yeah, OJ has uh, said that, you know, he's trying to, you know, be, be a, a, an, exempl- an exemplar for other prisoners. He also said uh, in a different part of the hearing that he has taken, quote, two alternative to violence classes. Well, a little late for that one. Uh, it is, of course, uh, almost universally believed that he got away with double murder back in 1994, killing his wife and a a friend of his wife's who just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. If you have not seen the FX series, uh, the O.J. Simpson FX series last year, uh, I highly recommend you go back and watch it. It is really well done. I thought it was excellent. And a Cuban Good- Cuba Gooding Jr. Uh, does a fantastic job playing O.J. Simpson in that, which I wouldn't have thought until I saw it, but he actually did a really, really, uh, really good job. 
So, uh, yeah, so OJ is getting out. It, it, I remember the trial pretty well. See, this is why everybody uh, was paying attention to the uh, hearing. Well, I shouldn't say everybody, but this is why all the cable news channels. A lot of people really built their media careers, in fact, off of the OJ trial. Uh, I think Greta Van Sustern really got going because of the OJ trial and her legal analysis coverage of it. It was I know it was a big thing for Geraldo Rivera. I mean, I, I can't even remember all these. I was young. I was, uh, gosh, 13 years old or 14 years old, something like that, when the OJ trial was happening, 13 years old. Uh, and it just was on TV all day long. And it was the single biggest show. You know, it was pre-reality TV, really pre-internet. The only internet people had was like CompuServe at that time. And I was like, and maybe you had AOL. I was like, hello, welcome, you know. You've got mail and all that stuff. Uh, so to have a reality TV show, a courtroom drama like that, that was on for so many months and just it brought in so much of the hot button issues at the time. You know, crime and racial tension were at a particularly uh, there were a particularly tough point. Then it was after the Rodney King verdict. And so there was a lot of. Uh, a lot of animosity over police and issues of race, and and the O.J. Simpson trial just brought all together. I mean, O.J. was a double murderer, a wife beater, uh, but he was an incredibly famous rich athlete. He was a black American. You know, you add all of these things together, and it just was this super combustible mix, and the whole, I mean, the whole country was watching. I remember, and I also really remember, remember very well, this is one of those things, Never in my my I was in primary school. I was in the eighth grade when this happened, and I remember that the teacher in my classroom had gotten a radio because everyone wanted to listen to the verdict live, and we had all I was only in eighth grade. We had all been following the trial, and when they finally read out that jury verdict, if you remember. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Orenthal James Simpson, not guilty of the crime of murder in violation of Penal Code Section 187A, a felony upon Nicole Brown Simpson, a human being, as charged in count one of the information. Superior Court of the State of California, County of Los Angeles, in the matter of the people of the State of California versus Orenthal James Simpson. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Orenthal James Simpson, not guilty of the crime of murder in violation of Penal Code Section 187A, a felony upon Ronald Lyle Goldman, a human being, as charged in count two of the information. When they finally read it out, I I remember feeling like, wow, that. The justice system in this country is not what I thought it was, even as a, as a young kid. So, so you can you can in fact get away with a double murder. And you know, I I, I want to just mention this about the uh, O.J. Simpson, uh, the peop the People versus O.J. Simpson show on FX. Uh, the most compelling scene in that entire uh, series, and it's a series, a miniseries, I think, was when. Ron Goldman, who was, remember, Nicole Brown was murdered by O.J., and then, you know, Ron Goldman, um, I guess I guess technically we have to say allegedly murdered by O.J., right? But you know, for legal reasons. Uh, but he did lose a wrongful death suit, so I, I don't really know how that works uh, in terms of the, the legalities of it. But Ron Goldman's, you know, what you can say about O.J., Ron Goldman's father, 
uh, sat down with the district attorney. Now, this is a fictionalized account of it, but that was the most power for me, the most powerful sequence in the entire miniseries. He's essentially saying, you know, my son was just a good guy who just was dropping off sunglasses and was murdered by this maniac. And everyone's talking about, like, what a great quarterback he is and police and police African-American community issues. But, you know, my son was just a nice guy who volunteered and was a good guy and was murdered brutally. You know, where's my justice? I mean, it is it is a gut wrenching. It is a powerful scene uh, in that in that FX series that and I do think that uh, Ron Goldman's family uh, didn't get, you know, there was never enough focus on not only to OJ kill his wife that he had been again, allegedly, I guess. Uh, that he had been abusing, uh, that's that's just we have tapes so that we know about that. But also that he killed this guy who was just there. It's uh, uh, amazing that somebody could get away with such a, an obvious double murder like that. But you know, it was also early on in the history of DNA and uh, in the, the usage of DNA in criminal cases. Okay, so I, I jumped away though from the uh, what it was like when I heard the verdict. So there I am sitting with my uh, classmates. And sure enough, the teacher had gotten a radio. It was the only time, I think, in my entire grammar school career that we had taken out a radio to hear the news. Because remember, this is pre-internet, pre-cell phone. Gosh, feels like forever ago now. And when they said not guilty, uh, I lost my faith in the justice system temporarily. And I also remember, and I just have to share this with you because there's a very vivid memory. Uh, I went to a, a Catholic school here in New York City, and it had uh, a very small minority population per class. I'd say if there were 40 students a class, we usually had about four or five uh, minority students, uh, four or five students who were African-American. Um, that was usually the breakdown per class. So I mean, maybe it was 10% overall of the class. Um, so... I, I remember a couple of the students, a couple of the black students, uh, one of whom was actually a very good friend of mine, when the verdict was read, and everyone around the room kind of looked like they had just been gut punched. Uh, a couple of my friend, a couple of my fellow students, and one of whom was a very good friend of mine, standing up, cheering, wildly, loudly, just cheering, is cheering like like the their favorite team had just won the Super Bowl. And running around, not just the classroom, but running around the school, pointing at people and yelling, in your face, in your face, the juice is loose, in your face. Uh, and, and I was shocked. I mean, the teachers were so, it was so shocking to all of us that uh, there was no one, there was no disciplinary measure taken or anything. People were just, we all just kind of decided, I guess, to move on. We were sitting there just thinking to ourselves, what, what just happened? What, what was that? Um, but it, it was, I think, in, indicative of a mindset. There was, and it comes across in the FX miniseries, and there was a mindset that this was for the black community in America. Um, now, I'm not saying everyone had this mindset, but there was out there at the time a mindset that for the black community in America, this was almost a, a form of payback that there was so much injustice done to the black community in the past that O.J. Simpson literally getting away with double murder was uh, a corrective for all of America's ills. Uh, I mean, it just 
really uh, reprehensible and and immoral and twisted thinking, but it, it was out there. And I remember, I remember people saying it. I remember hearing it, and we all. I had very vivid memories of that OJ trial. We just it was on all the time. People were all talking about it. It, it was, I think, the single most covered news event that I can remember before nine eleven, and before that whole uh, you know attack and and the phenomenon of. Islamic terrorism became such a a part of our day-to-day lives in terms of our discussion. I mean, the OJ trial was seared into my mind as a young a young guy, um, and I just never forgot it. So, anyway, so OJ is getting paroled. Uh, he's going to be a, a relatively free man. I mean, obviously, he still has to go through some uh, parole procedures and has some limitations. Um, and the country really today—I mean, it doesn't at this point. It's been so long since the trial. But I think that just the country took a moment today to, to remember what that was like. And I think that informed opinions for for a lot, for millions of people for a long time to come about what, what the criminal justice system in this country was really like and what wealth and power and narratives of race and racial discrimination can do in a courtroom. Uh, anyway, team, so I just wanted to have my uh, moment there. Thinking about OJ and the case. Uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes, team. I've got a lot more, uh, including a discussion about why I'm a conservative. That's coming up. We'll be right back. The left has a hamburger problem, everybody. And uh, to explain exactly what that means, we've got Kyle Smith joining us now. He is critic at large for National Review. Kyle, great to have you on. Hey, thanks. Uh, the hamburger problem with the left. What is, I love hamburgers. What's their problem? The problem with the left is the, politi- the, politi- the politicization of everything. They politicize everything on the left. Uh, so when you're tucking into a hamburger, it's going to show up on social media. Don't eat hamburgers, save the world. Or have fewer children, save the world. Or, my goodness, don't drive an SUV. You want to save the planet, don't you? Or better yet, don't drive a car at all. You should bike to work. This constant hectoring from liberals is one of the big reasons I think uh, the Democratic Party is turning off so many voters and suffered such uh, historic and catastrophic losses last November. I also have to say that there seems to be some some glee from uh, leftist millennial types in in really leaning into uh, a, a kind of uh, Brooklynite elitism. Sometimes, you know, they they don't hide it. I mean, you mentioned in your piece, Josh uh, Josh Barrow, uh, whom I don't know, but I've seen some of it. I've read his, some of his stuff. I've seen some of his stuff on Twitter, and he's occasionally just like, "Yeah, Kmart people are gross." More or less, that's what he says. I mean, I'm not, you know, that's not actually what he says, but that's kind of what he's implying. Yeah, it's a very condescending attitude. You know, the Democrats used to be the party of the people, the sort of the party that goes from the ground up. Now they're very much a top-down party. It's run, as you say, out of Brooklyn. Hillary Clinton's campaign headquarters was literally in, in Brooklyn last year. And uh, she's sort of surrounded by people who say, wait a minute, uh, you know, we, we don't need the white working class anymore, even though that's still a huge chunk of the country, even though uh, white people are still, I think, 72% of the electorate or something like that. They basically write them off and say, well, single women, minorities, gays, cultural elites, people like this are a coalition, and we can just write off everybody from you know Pennsylvania to Wisconsin. Well, that didn't work out so well for them. And I think the sense that uh, uh, the, 
the leader of the free world should be someone who culturally speaking is in your corner, someone who has your back, someone who, who sort of shares your, uh, your wish to be left alone. I think that's a very powerful determinant for who we vote for for president, uh, uh, much more so than sort of specific policy proposals, you know, things like Head Start and boring stuff like that. Uh, you want the president to, to culturally align with you. I think for a lot of people, they think that – that Trump being anti-political correctness is is a big attraction. Do you think that uh, the politicization of, of all things on, on the left, and I will also just put out there that I think at some level uh, Twitter has, has fed into this. I actually have a lot of... Uh, a lot of sympathy for some recent uh, authors, pundits, talking head types who have said, you know what, I'm just I'm just done with Twitter because it's turned into uh, a, a snarky shouting match and, and people are just be acting like idiots on it all the time, which is unfair, but there's some truth to it. Uh, there's actually, I think, a good chunk of truth to it. But are we just more aware of the politicization of all things because of the social media dominant world that we live in now where, you know, yeah, somebody can, to your point about a hamburger, somebody can be a foodie who takes a photo of a hamburger, puts it out there. And now that's a comment board for people to say, do you realize that cow farts put methane in the atmosphere and methane just, you know, is one of the worst gases for the ozone and blah, blah, all that stuff? Yeah, the the, uh, the internet in general is like a megaphone for people's bad behavior, and I, I think probably staying off Twitter will probably would be good for your mental health. Uh, yeah, you, you probably if you're uh, if you're standing on the street corner and someone was drinking a soda or something, you probably wouldn't feel uh, emboldened enough to lecture that person that soda is bad for you and it's going to lead to you know obesity and diabetes and higher medical insurance costs for everybody. But people feel free to do these kinds of things on Twitter, and they kind of egg each other on. It goes farther and farther left. And as I noted in my National Review piece, once you get on the progressive train, once you're a professional progressive, that train doesn't stop till it gets to crazy town. All kinds of crazy stuff happens every week. I mean, we saw just this week uh, USA Today movie critic denouncing uh, the movie Dunkirk for not having enough minorities and women. Uh, we saw the Women's March tweeting out support for a convicted cop killer who's been hiding out in Cuba as a, as a revolutionary hero for the left. I mean, this is just totally routine stuff. Uh, you know, speech is violence, but violence is just a really neat form of free expression. All this crazy stuff is just completely normal within Democratic and progressive circles, and very few people have the guts to say, wait a minute, I, I'm a Democrat. I believe in, uh, you know, more entitlement spending, things like that, but I'm not down with all this ridiculous cultural stuff. And by the way, you mentioned Dunkirk. Uh, my brothers wanted to see it with me. You wrote about it on nationalreview.com. You are the critic at large. We're speaking to Kyle Smith uh, this weekend. Should I go check out Dunkirk if I can? You know, it's very intense. It's not bloody like Saving Private Ryan. It's not gory. There's no heads being uh, lopped off or anything. But it's just as intense as that first 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan uh, all the way through. It's got uh, extremely loud, scary noises. There's a, there's a lot of men in peril. There's an overwhelming sense of uh, sort of uh, near despair and hopelessness because that, that was the situation on the beach while they were waiting to be evacuated. So, uh, you know, if that's, if that's your cup of tea, by all means, see it. Uh, I, I thought it needed a little bit more of the sort of Spielbergian, Spielberg kind of heart, and it was more of a great technical achievement and one that, that didn't emotionally grab me as much as uh, some more movies do. So what were your grade for Dunkirk? Oh, I'd give it three or three and a half stars, but I don't think it's a masterpiece, as some would say. All right. I think I might have to go check that out. Real quick, we only got about a minute, but what is Dog Dumping Millennial Style starring Lena Dunham all about? That's on National Review. 
Helena Dunham actually broke up with her dog and, and publicly posted about it. It was a completely ridiculous story. She had adopted this dog from a shelter, like a hipster dog shelter in Brooklyn. And uh, she, she blamed the dog, which she, she gave the dog uh, to a different uh, organization, even though the shelter she got it from said the dog had never behaved badly, she alleged. And also the shelter said she, she had to sign an agreement when she adopted the dog that if she didn't want the dog anymore, she'd have to return it to that shelter. So uh, she she lied about the dog's history of bad behavior. She claimed the dog had had abusive owners. The shelter had never heard that before, and she she basically covered her tracks uh, by completely misleading the public. Yeah. Even uh, even the dog even the dog didn't like her. No surprise, she's the worst. Kyle Smith, everybody, critic at large for National Review. Kyle, thank you, sir. Thank you, team. We're in a break. We'll be right back with more. Stay with me. Buck is back. Hey, everybody, Buck's back. It's more of America Now. Throw in your two cents. 1-844-900-BUCK. That's 1-844-900-2825. I'm a big Netflix user. I really enjoy the ability to watch shows on on demand, and so I've been a fan of Netflix for some time. And, in fact, I'm not somebody who has a cable TV subscription uh, and just does everything through a la carte and and I guess I'm part of this new generation of cord cutters that the execs have been talking about, have been worried about for some time. Uh, but Netflix has gotten into the content game, and they're clearly going after a demographic in which you know I am and a lot of other folks listing uh, fall into the category too, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s. That's really where a lot of the programming on Netflix is aimed, you can tell. And uh, there was this this show that I, I just gave a shot to. I hadn't read anything about it. I just wanted to watch a little bit of it. Always looking for, you know, the next thing to watch on Netflix. I really like uh, the Daredevil sh- uh, show on on Netflix. Um, I, I did not like Luke Cage, and I'm somebody who, generally speaking, likes superhero stuff. Uh, although I do think that movies, big-budget movies, are way too reliant on the superhero genre these days. Apparently, the new Spider-Man movie is really good. Maybe I should check it out. Anyway, uh, Bloodline on Netflix is an excellent show. Um, I really like that I can watch The Last Kingdom on Netflix, which is a BBC show about the Viking invasion and partial conquest of uh, of England. Um, I really recommend that one to you, by the way. The first season's great. The second season, don't really love quite as much. But I, I, I usually think that Netflix does a pretty good job. But recently, I've started to see that there's been it's been less about telling great stories and compelling narratives, and there's a bit of the political social justice thing coming into it. And I just want entertainment to try and do that to entertain me yeah you can inform and enlighten and you know there's emotional connection from it and i get all that but it's supposed to be entertaining i don't need a political lecture and i certainly don't need political narratives jammed down my throat uh with under the guise of it just being a story right and sure enough you know there's the bill nye the science bill nye saves the world and bill nye the science guy was the old old show and Bill Nye Saves the World is just a, a, a mountain of molten pterodactyl poop. It is just the worst, absolutely the worst, unwatchable trash. And uh, I saw somebody said, that I think it's nominated for an award. I mean, it's just pathetic, right? It's, it's all politics, nothing else. But there's this other show, and I'm thinking, okay, here we go, because I really like this sitcom. The, uh, it, was a, it was a network sitcom called How I Met Your Mother. 
Those of you who haven't seen it, it's good. If you're going to watch Parks and Rec, which is an NBC sitcom, start in season two, just skip season one, and just be all about Ron Swanson. It's a, that's a great show. Um, but uh, How I Met Your Mother reminds it's all based on New York City, young person dating, and so there's a lot of a lot of stuff that resonates with me as a guy who grew up and lived most of his life in New York and has been on the dating scene for quite quite a while and been on more than his fair share of dates. So How I Met Your Mother is a good show. This show is called, this new Netflix show is called Friends from College. And I got about 10 minutes into it. And it's just now so clear to me that the what's considered cool among my, my general demographic, I'm 35, what, what's considered cool is to be a nihilistic, self-involved, unkind jerk. And that just being gross and petty is confused with being funny and this is in the pop culture all over the place. But this show, Friends from College, and the guy, one of the guys from the Key and Peele show is like the main character. He's terrible. Uh, he's not funny at all in this. I don't know. If, I've never thought he's funny in anything else either, but he's not funny at all in this. I'm watching this show, and it starts off. These are supposed to be friends from college. And one of them, you know, there's two married couples. They're having, one of them's having an affair with one of the other married couples. They're having an affair the woman announces in the first 10 minutes of the show that, you know, she had an abortion in college. No big deal. Uh, so people are cheating on each other. They're breaking their marriage vows. They're having abortions. They're lying about their careers. They're just self-loathing has. And this is true in the HBO show Girls as well, which I will admit to having watched one or two episodes of because I wanted to know what was going on. It's also terrible. But self-loathing, narcissistic, petty, lying, gross Millenn- you know, older millennials, 30-something-year-olds, are now held up as somehow emblematic of my generation. And I'm like, excuse me, you know, we've had millions of people that are, you know, around my age, within 10 years up or down, 20 years up even, who served in Iraq and Afghanistan. We've got people who are just, just kick-ass patriots all over this country who are really funny and cool and doing great stuff and and this is what's represented. These little, these little uh, pajama boys, all grown up, and and cheating on their wives and acting like jerks and not being funny. That's what I have to see on TV. I mean, you know, it makes me want to get in the fictional TV writing business because you know, let's tell some stories about people that are are, are relatable and that are worth caring about, that are inspiring. They can be flawed, but you know. I want good and bad. I want the struggle. I want heroes. I want people from my my age I can root for. This show on Netflix, I'm telling you, it's called Friends from College. It should just be losers from college. It's really disappointing. Netflix really going social justice warrior on it. I did not like it. All right, we'll hit a break. Uh, I'll talk to you about government stuff and why I'm a conservative in just a few. If you're like me and you live in an area completely overrun with progressive liberals, you've probably been asked the question at some point, why are you a conservative? And maybe over the course of that conversation, you've gotten into the part of this where you're asked, why are you so hostile to government? And people will even say to me, you worked for the government. How can you think the government is such a bad idea so much of the time? And I always respond to them, well... There are lots of parts of life that can be a very good thing, but I want to limit. I want to make sure there's a time and a place for it. You know, the doctor is a great thing when you need the doctor, and 
At one time or another, all of us will need some form of medical care, but I don't want the doctor also telling me what I should do for a living, who I should date, where I should live. I just go to the doctor for essential medical services. That's kind of how I think about government. I just want the government to do the stuff that the government absolutely positively has to do and is useful in doing. And even if they're not good at it, they're the only ones who should do it. That's the way that I view government, right? That's how I philosophically approach these issues. And sometimes I think it's best when I'm having this conversation, as I've had many times in the past, because I think some people are surprised to say, oh, you, you grew up in Manhattan. You're from New York City. Uh, you were surrounded by liberals your whole life. How is it that you are such a conservative? And I say, well, first of all, I've been a conservative for as long as I can remember caring about anything that happens in the world, so probably about 14 or 15. And I'm always surprised that more people who grew up around me aren't conservatives. Being in a large city, you see the way that the government is constantly wasting money and making mistakes. But instead of just getting into that back and forth, maybe a better way to do it is to look at a specific story, uh, an incident, uh, an instance of the government and how it really functions, and try to extrapolate, try to take from that the, the lessons of this bigger conversation about my view of government overall. In a sense, look at a little story and take big lessons from it, because I think that's a very helpful way of addressing much larger issues of, of political philosophy. And here's a great one. It's up in Toronto. So what's up, Canada? Team Buck Canada in the house. A guy in Toronto lived near a park. And this was just a story from uh, yesterday, actually. It was published in, uh, well, CTV up in Canada ran a story on it. It's been published in some newspapers. So this guy up in Toronto spends uh, a, well, as an aside, by the way, I remember one of my parents' friends telling me that he grew up in Toronto and I, I was just fascinated by this. And I was like, T so tell me more about what, what was it like growing up in Albania? And I went on for some length. And he goes, what do you mean Albania? I'm from Tirana. And I was like, oh, I thought you meant Tirana, the capital of Albania. You meant Toronto, which apparently if you're from there, some people say Tirana. I, I, didn't, I didn't know this. Something, something new and different for me all the time. So, uh, so Toronto, as I like to say, as a New Yorker, uh, had this little park, and there's a, 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 a decline. Now, look, this isn't a... We're not talking about North Korea's nuclear program here, right? This isn't going to light the world on fire. But there's a, a little decline, and people keep falling when they try to go into this local park. So a guy in Toronto named Adi Ostel, who is a retired mechanic, he decided that this needed to be fixed. And the government in Toronto already knew, the city government knew this was a problem. People were falling. They were hurting themselves. And so they had gotten together the basics of a program to build. And there's photos of it. I mean, it's like six steps. Now, this is the fun part, of course. What do you think the city of Toronto wanted to spend on these six steps? Well, the estimate that the city had for this job was 65000 to $150,000. How, how is it possible that a staircase with six or seven steps in a little park in Canada could cost, let's just, to be, to be nice about it, we'll say it cost 
70 grand. How could that be the case? And of course, the answer is government because there's no accountability, because it's taxpayer dollars, because there's all kinds of regulations, because there are uh, safety considerations that are excessive that must be taken into account because of the litigious, fast-to-sue society that we live in, that Canadians live in as well. So they have to deal with all these different regulations, and I'm sure it has to be accessible for the elderly and handicapped accessible, and there's all these different things that come into it. When you just need a staircase, because people that walk down this embankment fall and hurt themselves, and it's been a continuing problem. So this retired mechanic says, you know what, I'm just going to build my own staircase. And he does. And it's fine. And everyone in the neighborhood is happy up in Toronto. And his staircase, instead of costing $70,000, costs about 500 bucks. So he was able to build a perfectly functional wooden staircase that everybody can use that makes the neighborhood happy on his own time, on his own dime, for $500. Not $65,000, which is what Toronto wanted to spend on this job. And you might think, okay, well, happy ending of sorts here. The community gets what it wants. Taxpayers are saved money. Government sloth, government lethargy is not... Uh, you know, is overcome in this instance. But, oh, no, no. No, no, there you'd be wrong. Because the uh, city government up there has decided that they think they have to tear this down. Why? Because it doesn't meet code. And they don't want people building their own structures, they say, on public property. Now, I can understand at some level that they don't want people to just be constructing, certainly for private use, on public land structures, and they are safety concerned. But if you look at this thing, it is a staircase with six freaking wooden stairs. Who cares, right? What's the big deal? It's their stairs. Maybe they could add a little, a few planks to them to make them sturdier, but to tear it down where people, again, are going to fall because it's a slippery embankment and there's no way to get down into this park, and then wait for the $65,000 version, that's really just, at its essence, that is government. Government, because of the way bureaucracies function and the way government employees think, and I am personally familiar with this, government doesn't really care what the effects are for any given specific project or agenda item. Uh, The most important thing for government employees, like in the private sector, is that they get paid and that their benefits are fulfilled. That is the most important thing that you come across in most bureaucracies. Yes, there are fabulous government employees who go above and beyond, but there are also a lot of government employees who feel like they're unfireable, immovable, and just don't really care what their agency, administration, or, uh, or, or government body is supposed to be doing. Because there's no incentive for excellence. Government work is overwhelmingly a place where ambition and excellence go to die. And that's not the fault of any one person in the government. That's just the nature of publicly funded bureaucracy. They they aren't really accountable. And sure, we can push them to be better, But one of the reasons why I always want government to do the bare minimum is because I know that at the end of the day, the day ends at 5 p.m. for basically a vast majority of government employees. 
and they are justifying their existence and that people will slip and fall and hurt themselves because they don't if they tear down this staircase it's not really the concern of those in government they really care about the regulations they really care about making sure that everything is done according to quote code now by the way some of you who are homeowners i'm sure have had your own battles with the local uh, the local code or, or housing inspectors at where you are, it is just insane. I mean, they will tell you that a sink is too close to your door or that a staircase that you've been using for 20 years isn't wide enough or that, you know, any number of things, right? You know, you need more areas of egress. Oh, well, you know, I'm on the second floor. We could just go out the window if we really had to. No, no, you know, you have to have marked fire exits. I mean, the government will always find ways to justify its own payroll and it will do so at the expense of the people that it's supposed to serve. So this case up in Canada is just it's just another story. It's a small story, I know. But this is, the, this is the bottom line truth of how governments function. That's why, yeah, I want the government to do what is outlined in the Constitution. I want states to do what is, is necessary for public order and safety. But always, always the minimum, always the, the absolute barest of necessities when it comes to regulation and uh, that's just my philosophical approach because they don't want to spend $500 on a staircase they want to spend 70000 on a staircase and they want to make sure that it's all according to their own designations and descriptions and it's not at the end of the day really about doing what's best for the taxpayer so this little staircase up in Canada, I just think this is a story that I'll be telling friends of mine. The the, the five hundred or the, the seventy thousand dollar staircase. That's the choice between private ingenuity and government action. Team, as always, an honor and a pleasure to be here with you in the Freedom Hut. Thank you so much for hanging out. Please do check out uh, bucksexton.com and bucksexton.com slash store to uh, grab some gear. The, uh, the, the more gear we sell, the more different kinds of gear we can get up there and, and new designs. And so it, it really does matter. And it's also a great way to show your support for Team Buck and, and for the whole show. Also, if you are on Twitter, please do follow me at Buck Sexton. And this, the single biggest favor you could do for me, for those of you listening, and I, as you know, put my heart and soul into this show every day. I spend all day thinking about it, preparing for it. Single biggest favor is tell one person, send them the podcast. Send them a link to iTunes. Go to Buck Sexton with America Now on iTunes. Obviously, subscribe yourself and share it with one person. If all of you did that over the next couple of weeks, man, it would it would make a huge difference to everything we're doing here in the Freedom Hut. It really would. So iTunes is a great way to do it. And anyone who's not in an area where they can listen, the iHeartRadio app allows you to listen. All you need is an Internet or a cell phone connection on your smartphone. Uh, so tomorrow we've got a really fun Freestyle Friday planned with all of you. I'm excited for it. Uh, let me know your thoughts and plan to join tomorrow when you can. Until then, my friends, Shields High.